Hello and welcome to Raise a Glass. I am Hunter Danson. And I am Eric Lintola. And this is the podcast where we discuss the stories and storytellers that shape us. Uh, and we're going to be talking about After the Last Border by Jessica Godot. It is about uh, refugees uh, and more. And But before we get to that, I have to know what's in your glass, Eric. Hunter, inside of my jelly mug, uh, it <laughs> says you complete me. There's another one that has peanut butter on it. Uh, yes, yeah. it's adorable. I have a lemon ginger herbal tea with honey. My voice isn't feeling great today. And so mm. hoping that helps soothe the voice as we speak. All right. What is in your glass? Um, I have a, a white Tide um, Belgian-style ale uh, from Aldi. I was looking at the bottle, and I believe it's actually uh, bottled in Rochester, New York. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, it's it's all right. I I didn't look too closely at the label when I bought it. I just like oh, it's a Belgian style like fat tire. I kind of miss having fat tires, but uh, uh, it has like citrus and orange peel in it or something. And I'm usually not a huge fan of that, but you know it's all right. It's uh, mm-hmm. pretty easy drinking. So. <laughs> what more can you ask from your beer? But I got to know, uh, are you are you pouring one out or, or raising a glass to anything this week? Yes. I said, Jay, what are you pouring one out or raising one? Because uh, we always pour one out or raise one. <laughs> yeah, we say, it, we say it that way every week, but in reality, it's... We always... Yeah, yeah. with you. Um. Uh, I'll start with what I'm pouring one out for because there's a. I need to show you a video of what I'm raising a glass to. Um, oh, okay. And I don't know. I don't know how well it's going to transfer, but um, I am pouring one out to allergies. Oh my goodness! Mm. I feel like my body's being hit pretty hard by them this year. Yeah, and I just want it to be like a specific season, and that season being spring and not winter anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of like the, I really think that's the main piece about my throat hurting and everything. Is that change yeah. of season, the, the pollen? Um, I love flowers, I love trees, but I'm not a big fan of allergies. Yeah. And I am raising a glass to a a game that I played at a camp last week um, called. Crate stacking. Have you heard of this, Hunter? Mm. Have you ever crate uh, stacked? No. Okay. Let me walk you through the premise um, for all okay. of those listeners at home, um, seeing as how you will not be able to see this video. Uh, 
which is uh, I'm going to show to Hunter, but we will probably skip ahead on. Um, okay. The premise of crate stacking is you're in a team of two. So Hunter, you and I are a team. Okay. Uh, and we have each other. We have one belay um, mm-hmm. with a harness, and one person is harnessed in and belayed. Um, and we have a bunch of milk crates. You know those black crates with all the you know, that you pick up and you put milk in. Yeah, that's the premise. So that those okay. are the materials. Um, and one person's job is to put the milk crates in two stacks next to each other. Mm-hmm. And the other person's job is to stand on them. And so you are okay. slowly stacking crates on top of each other. Uh, and as you're doing it, the person who's standing on them is getting higher and higher into the air. And you eventually hit a point, if you're doing it well enough, where the stacker can no longer stack the crates. Mm-hmm. And instead they have to throw the crates up okay. to the person who is standing on them so they can catch them and put them down so they can stand and, and move between them. Um, hmm. that so do you is, have like two stacks going? Yes. Uh, so imagine like yeah. two parallel towers touching each right. other. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that is the entire premise of it. Um, I will show you just one quick picture of it. Um, that is me in the bottom. Uh, oh, um, well. It's relatively yeah. early on in the process. Oh, uh, and okay. And then I'm going to just show you a video just because I think it's hilarious. Um, (laughs) Holy, wow. This is my friend, Chris. He is 19 crates high at this point. And I am chucking milk crates as high as possible. It's probably about 25 feet in the air. Yeah, that is very high. Um, I can't really see him as I'm throwing them. Yeah, because like, uh, I throw it to him and then I try to hold the stack so he doesn't fall. Mm-hmm. Not to be attempted He's... without a bungee. Correct. Um, he is currently Uh-oh. doing this, stepping onto his twentieth crate. Wow. Ooh, nice kick. Oh! <laughs> and that is crate stacking. It is wow. exhilarating. If they had it at a camp that I went to growing up, I think mm. I would have been there every day. Um, but having <laughs> a group of people in their, primarily in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s doing it, mm. <laughs> um, let's just say the record for this camp is... Uh, set by a 12 year old who's mm. tiny, you know, and has a low center of gravity and can you know, make uh, sense. He got 29 crates high. Wow. It was probably over 40 feet in the air. Yeah. That is very high. To be standing on milk crates. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got. Uh, so that's what I'm raising the last two. I think it's nice. a very unique and fun thing. Yeah. Great stuff. you, Hunter? Well, uh, I'll leave my pour one out first. Um, I'm pouring one out uh, for the crafting system in Horizon Forbidden West. 
<laughs> which if you listened to our author interview, you know that I raised a glass to Horizon Forbidden West. Um, <clears throat> Cause it is very fun. It's a sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn, uh, which I absolutely adored. Um, but they added in a ton of stuff in Forbidden West, which is cool. But in my opinion, they added way too much to the point where mm. in order to like to get the you, when you get a weapon, you have to upgrade it. And um, the amount of resources that they require of you to upgrade this weapon has like four different levels. It's just abs it's just insane. Like it li <laughs> to the point where when I boot up the game, I feel like I have to I have like a chore list. Um, and that's just not how I want to feel when I'm playing a game. Uh, especially maybe it's just because I'm old and I'm a dad and I don't have as much time to, to play video games, but like um, it's really kind of draining on me. And, and I like, I'm conflicted because I really like it and I love the first one a lot. And I didn't have that problem in the first one. Like the progression was great. And, but uh, yeah, the crafting system just, it's, it's just too much, um, too much. I, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to probably just stop playing, but I already beat the Oof. main story. So, but I wanted no. to do all the side activities and upgrade my gear, but it's just You're like one of those people. Yeah. For certain games, you know, like I don't, but sure. I know that there are people <laughs> like you. I don't yeah, understand I mean, the type of people, but well, I, I do it selectively. Like, for Horizon, I will because I I really like Horizon and I think it's worth it. But other games, I don't know. I just avoid them. Uh, are you raising a glass to anything? Yes, uh, I am raising a glass um, to A Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare. My wife and I have been reading it, uh, and we watched the movie with uh, Stanley Tucci as Puck. Uh, Mm. It was great, pretty great movie, pretty great adaptation. Stanley Tucci's they, amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Um, they add bicycles and um, opera, like Italian opera, Renaissance stuff. Uh, and it works. It works really well. Uh, and it's great. And um, I just wanted to share a line from it. Um, and this is Robin Goodfellow. As a puck or hobgoblin in Oberon's service, um, and this is when he is correcting his mistake because he puts some love juice on the wrong lover's eyes, uh, and that's how the whole mix-up happens. And um, but he's correcting his mistake here, his mistake here, and he says, "When thou wakest, thou takest true delight." in the sight of thy former lady's eye. And the country proverb known, that every man should take his own, in your waking shall be shown. Jack shall have Jill, naught shall go ill. The man shall have his mare again, and all shall be well. It's a comedy, not a tragedy. Um, Good uh, follow up to Hades Town. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
Thanks for sharing that, Hunter. Yeah. Hunter, I am very excited to talk about this book. Um, I think I first brought it to your attention two or three months ago, right? Yeah. We were talking, so, I think we were talking about things to do for season two, things to do when we got back from the hiatus. Uh, yeah. And so you've, you finished reading it probably a couple, a few weeks ago, right? I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I've read it uh, one and a third times, I'm <laughs> kind of working through a, a kind of a second and a third time, maybe, um, yeah. which I'll uh, explain in a second. Um, well, actually, why don't I explain it now? Uh, just okay. let me give a quick overview of this book. Mm-hmm. It's it's too there are too many pieces to kind of go super in depth. But after the last border, two families and the story of refuge in America is a combination of three separate stories brought together through a series of interviews and really friendship over multiple months and years. Jessica Goudeau tells the story of Muna, a woman from Myanmar who's resettled in Texas with her husband and her kids. And it's primarily her story in the United States. There's some reference to prior to them being resettled in the United States, but most of her story is arriving and what happened afterwards. The second story is that of Hasna, a Syrian refugee. And her story is primarily set prior to arriving in the United States. While Munah has a husband and a couple kids at the beginning of the story, Hasna is her grandma uh, with five kids, um, one of whom is pretty young, and multiple grandkids. And it's her experience and their experience as the, I think the appropriate word would be genocide. Um you know, internal war in Syria was uh, beginning and the way that impacted her and her family. And then uh, her her arrival in the United States. And then the third story is the story of refugee resettlement in the United States dating back to 1880. And so it's these three pieces, Munah, Hasna, and the history of refugee resettlement that Jessica Godot intertwines. And as an individual who works in refugee resettlement, um, that is my part of my profession, uh, I had this recommended to me by a coworker mm-hmm. Uh, in a different state whose language was, this is a book that everybody who works in refugee resettlement should read. I would push it a step further, and I'm Mm. sure she would agree, that this is a book that everybody should read. It is not an easy book to read by any means, and we'll we'll discuss that. But it is so effective 
at taking you know, the current climate, political climate, you know, climate around refugees, and solidifying it into a history, and then showing the way that human stories are impacted while not reducing the agency of the primary characters. Muna and Hasna are real people. That is not their real names. Their identities have been protected. And I'm so excited to bring this to us today. I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on it, Hunter. Um, There are many ways we could go in this conversation. Um, For those of you listeners who um, know nothing about Refugee resettlement, welcome. Um, I'm hoping over the next you know, many seasons of this podcast, you'll you'll get to learn a little bit more. I can share a little bit more of, of my world with you. Um, and really when I say my world, I'm thinking more in terms of the stories that I get to, to walk alongside. Um, do you want to talk a little about what you do? Um just for some context. Sure. Uh, I work at a refugee resettlement agency uh, in Rochester, New York. And my role is to connect uh, churches and communities, partners, whether it be schools or businesses or individuals with um, newly arrived refugees and other immigrants. Uh, I am continually mm. speaking um, at different groups and trying to grow a a broader vision for what it would look like if um, the greater Rochester area, really the entirety of Western New York was known as a place of welcome and as a place of love um, for, for everyone. Uh, And I'm thinking specifically in terms of uh, refugees and other immigrants um, we can talk about legal definitions at some point if you want to, um, but I do choose my words purposefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, the organization I work for is World Relief, um, which is an incredible organization. Um, we work here in Western New York, as well as 15 or 16 different offices across the United States, as well as currently we've got offices in 13 countries. Mm-hmm. Um Responding to more than mass displacement, responding to extreme poverty, to to war and disaster. Um, actually, our second largest office is in Sudan right now. So um, we're setting time, you know, time praying and, and lifting up our our friends and brothers and sisters in in Sudan in the midst of this um, really dangerous and. and um, terrible last three weeks of of, of fighting. Hmm. Well, thank you for uh, bringing this to the podcast. Uh, I was very glad that I read it. Um, mm-hmm. I, this this style of the writing is very easy to read. Uh, it, she she writes in a journalistic style, um, which is very clear, um, very precise, very emotive. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's emotionally it's very hard to read. Uh, 
just because of the things that Munah and Hasna go through. Um, and it does a very good job of connecting. I mean, for me, the special thing that it did was, was connect real people to the word refugee. Um, hmm. And I think especially uh, Hasna's story for me, um, because I remember hearing about the Arab Spring, uh, mm-hmm. and the man who set himself on fire, um, and, and all of that. I remember when it was on the news, and, you know, kind of ashamed to admit, I didn't really think too hard about it. There wasn't much I could do. I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't vote. Um, definitely prayed, I think, at the time, but, uh, but I think the thing I was uh, thinking about was when you hear that someone set themselves on fire as an act of protest, and this made it more clear, like, you know what would ha- what would have to happen to me in order for me to consider setting myself on fire um and hasna she's not really an activist um which i think is 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 it, she's not really an activist she uh is just trying to keep her family together um mhm and uh, you know, in spite of her best efforts, she's not able to keep everyone together. Um, and and she gets a lot of them out, and she herself survives. Um, but you know, her story is not done. Like I, I was reading the epilogue, and um, Yes, I I want to get there in this. It's it's, this is not a story with a bow on it that will make you feel good, um, because it's real human lives, and these aren't real human lives that lived at a different time. These are people that are alive now, that are undergoing many challenges that we, you and I, can't understand. Yeah, and hopefully nobody else ever has to. But that's right. not actually the reality of of what's happening in our world. Yeah. Um, if you if you still have a heart, this book will uh, break it. <laughs> uh, and and I think also like it's so easy to get jaded uh, just reading the news. Um, I know I don't really stay quote unquote in touch with the news as often as I should, just because it's so exhausting. Um, But when it's a human story, uh, it's, it's almost impossible not to connect to it. Um, (laughs) And then the other part of the book that I really appreciated was, um, you, the part you told me not to read. 
<laughs> I, I, mean, I, I was, didn't have to read it. Yes. Uh, it wasn't because yeah. I didn't think it was important, but because I wanted you to feel like you could get through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not super long, uh, you know, but again, it's not, it's not the, emotionally the easiest thing to read. So, but the, uh, the, you know, kind of interweaved, interspersed through Muna and Hosna's stories are sort of like history and summary of uh, you, the U.S. resettlement program and, and um, you know, refugee resettlement program and in general. And one of the things that I, that stuck out to me, I think that I'll remember for a long time is um, the summary of American attitudes towards refugees uh, and the history of um, restrictionists uh, versus, I forget the language. Liberalizers. Liberalizers, yes. Um, uh, Restrictionists are... um, Better safe than sorriest is. Uh, oh, I hate that language, and also found it. <laughs> Do you want to describe better safe than sorriest? Yeah. So let me find some. Uh, better safe than sorriest was the staple of such groups as the American First Committee, or the America First Committee, established in 1940. Their spokesman, Charles Lindenberg, used blatant anti-Semitic language in Iowa in 1941 to argue that the greater danger, the greatest danger to this country comes from the, quote, large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, or our radio and our government of, quote, the Jewish. As he framed it, these, quote, war agitators pushed the U.S. to enter the conflict for reason, for quote, for reasons which are not American. That was in 1940, um, and we have still have echoes of that. and And it was it was good to see the the back and forth throughout history because when I was in high school, you know. I I had this view of America that maybe I wanted to have, um, and it was defined by the Statue of Liberty. Give me your restless, your poor, yearning to breathe free. And I think what I didn't realize is that the Statue of Liberty was a, was kind of like a statement. It was it was a push for more openness in the face of restrictionists who who wanted to close America. Uh, and it, it it this book gives a nice history of the the real struggle to accept refugees and to um, welcome people to America when uh, you know. I think a lot of Americans, especially in the church, um, like to think of America as uh, a very, you know, we talk about immigrants and how they built the country and how, how the America is a great melting pot uh, and how that's all wonderful. But um, 
we're also incredibly hypocritical uh and we have historically not always been welcoming uh it's also important to note with what you shared hunter and and we i don't, I don't want to go too far into the weeds i actually would recommend people to read this um just because we can't dive into the entire history um, right. that the restrictionists and liberalizers have historically not simply been republicans and democrats there's actually yeah. a switch that happened at one point in the united states history um and Around refugee resettlement specifically, um, which is what this book focuses on, 1980 was an incredibly important year um, because that is the point in which the current refugee resettlement system under which we still operate was established by Jimmy Carter uh, during his presidency. And it's so important because through that process, there was a very robust resettlement response from the United States saying, hey, we need to be a place of welcome. While simultaneously, the follow-through of what that looks like uh, can feel like not nearly enough. And... That's very clear as you read Munaz and Hasna's story. Uh, and it's this really huge tension in which refugee resettlement agencies live in because we receive funding for the first 90 days of a family arriving in the United States to resettle them. And that's not a lot of time. And we don't receive a lot of funds. Um, and we want to help people as quickly as possible get to a place where they can be self-sufficient and thrive here um, or here being wherever they live in the United States. And I think of myself during COVID, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, March, April, and May of, of 2020 and uh, how effective was I, <laughs> you know, at getting anything done and now saying, okay, you know, you know or maybe a better example, moving, even within the United States, those first three months is the challenge of that. Now imagine you're moving across the world. You don't have any connections in this space. You don't speak the language. You don't understand the culture. Um, you might never have driven a car before or really understand modern technology, not through any fault of your own. Uh, and you are holding, you're holding on to this often major traumatic events that are continually impacting you mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, if not physically, um, as well as any physical wounds you might hold from the events that led you to the United States. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, and it's the, the reason I love this type of work. And I think it's very clear in this story is these stories is because we as welcomers, 
we as part of the church specifically can look at the person in front of us. For that, let me rephrase that. Are called, are commanded to look at the person in front of us and to love them for no other reason than that they were made in God's image and we were called to do it because Jesus did it. And that is it, period. And what a beautiful image when we see that done. And I can think of stories where that's done. And what a transformative power that has. At one point in Munah's story, she interacts, uh, she starts working at a um, pretty much a fair trade organization you know, that works with fair trade goods. And her first day, she's like, oh my goodness, I don't understand any of this. Uh, Muna, turns out, is absolutely brilliant and has an incredible mind for languages. Um, like, I want to be like her and her ability to pick up languages. I just don't understand how she could do it. <laughs> um, and she talks about the, the her fear in the first day. And then she connects with a coworker who's like, I remember being terrified on the first day. And she's like, what? but you're white, you know, you, <laughs> you're of this culture. Like how in the world were you scared? Um, <laughs> and they end up forming a relationship and a friendship. And it not only transforms Munah's work, but through that and through her, like becoming more settled in who she is, it also transform her, transforms her marriage mm. uh, and transforms their family. And that's one of those things that, that hit me so much is is Munah's relationship with with Saku. I just mm. I love I love reading it, even though it was really hard. And I was like, wow, this is what a marriage sounds like. You know, marriages aren't easy. They, you know, they're full of not ups easy and downs. in the best of times. Uh... Yes. And now, you know, it's through one, one of the pieces of Munal's story is, is her and her husband, Saka, were two, them and their two kids at the time were one of the very first Burmese families to be resettled in the United States, period. And that's an especially challenging thing because there's not a community of people with the same background to welcome you. Instead, they had to like pretty much become that community to welcome others. Um, and the challenges of finding jobs and uh, there are a couple people, but to welcome them. Hunter, I would love if there are specific thoughts you have quotes, parts of the stories that stuck out to you or questions you have for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we talk a little bit about, I talk about my job and our conversations um, and exciting things, but if there are things you're like, Hey, how, tell me about this or what did you think about this part of the story or whatever? I would love to discuss it with you. Okay. Um, What's the difference between a refugee and an immigrant? Hunter, I think that's a really important question because there's a lot of misinformation that exists in our country and there's a lot of polarized views based off of misinformation. And 
the legal definition of a refugee. And this legal definition matters because if somebody receives the legal designation of being a refugee, their opportunities change. Um, but the legal definition of a refugee, and it's true for both Hasna and Muna in the story, is an individual who's fleeing war, violence, or persecution based off of their race, religion, um, political opinion, social class, or social group, or nationality. And so if somebody, in order to be a refugee, you need to be really fleeing, and you need to be outside of your country of origin. Mm. So Hunter, if you are fleeing persecution while you're in the United States, but you are still within the United States, you are not considered a refugee. You are considered a forcibly displaced person. Mm. Um, Actually, that is the larger, I think of it, the larger rectangle that holds all the small squares. Um, you would even more specifically be considered an internally displaced person within the broad field of forcibly displaced people. If you got outside of the the United States, let's say to Canada, um, fleeing persecution, and you would at that point be an asylum seeker. Hmm. All refugees were at one point asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an asylum seeker, you're pretty much saying, hey, I'm claiming that I meet the legal definition of a refugee, but I'm seeking to be you know, welcomed in this country. This is where things can get a little bit confusing around international law. Um, but it, it's, it's important to still, because you know, there's no fully legal definition of an asylum seeker. Um, but it is, is kind of what I, is what I just shared. And at that point, if you are, if your asylum case is granted, um, in the sense that you will then be seeking, uh, the status of being resettled in a different country, you'd be considered a refugee. If you were, then granted and, you know, seeking to be resettled in the country where you are, you'd be called an asylee. All of this gets more and more complicated. And I can go into even further definitions of humanitarian parolees. Um, <laughs> you know, another, another uh, legal status is. But the important thing to know about refugees specifically is that refugees Nobody chooses to be a refugee. You are forced to be a refugee. Nobody chooses to flee their home when there's persecution or violence or war. It is something you have to do. You might not do it right away. That's actually a large part of Hasna's story. Them trying to go and come back. Um, But if you are a refugee, you've had to flee. And if you are ultimately refugees and resettled in the United States, you would actually would fall into the even larger category of immigrant. 
Um, but for the sake of this particular book, we're talking about the refugee process. And one of the biggest changes that happened that this book talks about, um, which will then hopefully lead us into the discussion of Hasna and uh, Munah, is that um, around 2016, there was a conflation of the term refugee and immigrant. And this isn't exactly what the book says, but this is kind of one of my readings of it. Um, one that uh, in this conflation took what had historically been a, at least since the 1980s, a, a bipartisan agreement to welcome refugees. And there's great statistical back, backups to, uh, yeah. to, to walk through this economically and safety wise and other things. Um, and it became partisan and all immigrants were thrown in the same bucket. And because of the way refugee resettlement works in the United States, the United States president has almost complete ownership over the number of refugees resettled in the United States in a given year. It is the single aspect of immigration that the United States president holds the most power over. And so when what had historically become been bipartisan became partisan and full of misinformation, full of better than safe than sorryism, full of fear-based decisions, full of this broken understanding of the perception of us being a welcoming country versus the reality of us not, um, then decisions were made that impacted real people's lives and very drastically impacted Hasna's life. Hmm. Um, Andre, I'd love to talk about Hasna and her story. Are there yeah. any questions you have of what I just shared? Any pieces you're like, ooh, you said something that made me feel really uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> Didn't make you know, me uncomfortable, but uh, there's there's definitely people out there who might have objections. But uh, this is our podcast, so <laughs> uh, I, I tried I tried my best to to speak speak in terms of facts. I'm sure some of my own opinions came into that as well, but yeah. Um, this is a challenging thing because the work around refugees is a very specific work. And, and yet it, it, as, as a person who does this work, it also colors my views of all immigration and yeah. I'm glad it does. I, well, I think this is a good, uh, transition. Uh, one of the things about Hasna's story that you learn is the astonishing amount of paperwork and um, research and investigation that refugee organizations do into refugees. Like Hasna, uh, it took them years just to like be considered for uh, resettlement. Um, years. <laughs> um, and one of the one of the um, 
things that she talks about in reference to what happened to the refugee program in, in 2016 and politics is that uh, refugee became a word to, went from being like you know people had a favorable view of refugees um they were the word refugee was it was evoked uh, i don't know noble sympathy um mm -hmm. and and it became for a certain faction uh a derogatory term um yeah yeah i hunter you talked about that paperwork yeah. uh, and about how long it took there the united nations high commissioner for refugees the unhcr mm -hmm. is the organization that designates people as refugees pretty much they hear and they say yes you are a refugee their cases or or no you know there's not enough evidence and that's a long process at one point in that process, um, a refugee is then told, hey, you will be resettled. does not happen very often. Mm -hmm. um, and of that, and then even smaller percentage are told, hey, you're going to be resettled in the United States. Then the United States does its own background screenings, which is a lot of what we were reading in Hasna's story. Andrew, do you want to hazard a guess at how long, on average, the United States screening process for refugees takes? Two years? Two to three years. Two to three years after they've already been screened by the United Nations. <laughs> An additional two to three years. Um, Follow-up question. Knowing that information, hearing a little bit about these stories, how long, on average... Do you think people are refugees? How Sorry, long do you think people are in refugee camps? Camps. Oh, 10 years. 17 years. Oof. The average stay of a refugee in a refugee camp in our, in our world is 17 years. Muna spent most of her, she grew up in a refugee camp. Yeah. She grew up in multiple. Yeah. Right, she she moved around a little bit too. Um, one yeah. other question, and then and then kind of because these are pieces. You're doing a great job, Hunter. Thanks. Um, <laughs> what percent of re percentage of refugees do you think are resettled anywhere in the world? A anywhere. Anywhere. Twenty percent. Less than one percent of refugees are ever resettled. In fact, the current goal of the United Nations is to increase that percentage to 1% of the current refugees a year being resettled anywhere in the world. Um, yeah. uh, just an idea of kind of what that means. The current number of refugees in the world is 32 million. Uh, and they're part of this larger group of forcibly displaced people in the world. That is over a hundred million. Um, and these numbers have skyrocketed in the two thousands um, because of global conflicts, because of um, various wars and ongoing civil wars um, and COVID mm. um, and other climate change factors that are impacting things that 
wouldn't create somebody being a, a refugee, but would make them have to leave their home possibly. And so it's just, it's, this is a type of information that I think can help change, change minds. Hmm. Um, but it can, it might be able to change minds, but it won't change hearts. Um, Husna seemed to have like an epic life <laughs> yeah. prior to the, the, the civil war, you know, the, the uh, in Syria. Um, she lived in a cool city and like an old family home. Mm. This you know, talks about one of her daughters, like her daughters, like her, she was, I think you said this earlier under your, uh, she what was the specific wording. She's not an activist, but, like her goal is <laughs> to keep her family together, but it's like she right. has a little bit activist mm. traits yeah. inside of her. And like her big thing was her three daughters needed to graduate from high school. Right. Something that she wasn't able to do and that many other women in that country at that time weren't able to do. She said, no, mm-hmm. my daughters are getting their high school diplomas. And and it was hard for that to happen, right? Where her one daughter, <laughs> Layla, like who seemed really cool, like got married mm-hmm. and was pregnant, and like her and her husband had to move out of his family's house because, like, he had agreed with Hasna, Layla's mom, right, the, the primary character, mm-hmm. that he would that. Layla would get her degree, her, yeah. graduate from high school. Otherwise, Hasna had the ability to um, end the marriage, which is crazy. Um, mm-hmm. Again, in that specific culture and that specific time. Um, but also, Layla and uh, oh, my, what is his name? Malik. Um, Malik. Oh, Malik. Which just seemed like the most wonderful man ever. Um, they they loved each other so much. Yeah, they they loved each other so much, and like their their story is one of of deep passion and love for each other. Um, I'm trying to figure out how much of this story we should give away versus not. I don't know. I mean, I I feel like we we just want to convince people to go and read it. I think that's the audio version of this. The audible version of this is amazing. Mm. I. It's a long book. It's a long book, right? There's three huge, three big stories that are being told. Uh, it's not a long, long book, but it's a long book. It's like 300 um, pages, right? I found myself crying throughout so much of it. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going through the references right now. It is, yeah, 300 pages. Um, and it's not always crying because it's sad, but also crying because of the hope and the love that it shows up in the midst of it. Um, in addition to the pain, um, and there is loss. There are members. There are real people that die in this story, um, and there are also real people that fall in love in the story. <laughs> and I think we have this thought sometimes as Americans that people want to be in the United States. <laughs> like everybody's goal in the world is to be to live in the United States and that refugees in particular would love to live in the United States. Right. And that's it's just not 
it's not always not not the case. You know, sometimes there is an aspect of that that is true, mm-hmm. but that's often very much not the primary narrative that is in people's lives. Let's remember, refugees don't want to leave their homes. Muna yeah. spends so much of her life in Texas, or she calls it taxi. Um, I just got back from taxi last week, in fact. Um, <laughs> she spends so much of her time in Texas thinking about her mom and her family and the love letters that her and Saka wrote each other that she hid under a specific tree near the hut where they lived. Um, if it were up to her, like she, if, if the, I think it's going on 70 years, this, this civil war in, in, um, in Burma, it's just Myanmar. Yeah. It's going on forever. It's the longest, I think it's a lot, just hit the point of being the longest civil war in human history. Mm. Like if that, if that civil war wasn't going on, I, I think she would move back in a heartbeat. Mm. Um, at least early on in that piece. And her mom chose never to be resettled in the United States, even though she had the opportunity because that was home for her. And Hasna, every step along the way, like the whole, even the process in which she went through to become a refugee was a, yeah, I'll start this process, but I'm planning on moving back in next week. Yeah. And she, that she, like, opportunity. Didn't want never- to take the call. She was like very surprised. When she got the call from the um, UNHCR. Well done. Thanks. Yeah. It, and by all accounts, her life in the United States is like harder than her life prior to, yeah. especially prior to the Syrian war. It, she had to give up her uh, Farouz records uh and her her rugs um her like really nice rugs that she saved for and were kind of like heirlooms her family and she's had a beautiful home i love the description of her home um and her cooking and, and that's i i i really enjoy learning about different cultures and tasting different food and um I really like, I, w- I wanted to like have Hasna make me a meal. <laughs> right. Oh my um, goodness. She's got yeah. an incredible cook. Right. Um, but she had to give all of that up. Uh, and she, she ends up in a tiny apartment in Texas. Um, with her injured with her, husband. With her injured husband. Um, he was hit by, almost killed by a missile. Uh mm-hmm in their house and her daughter is there too. And it's like a one bedroom apartment. And it, and I'm right in thinking it's, it's only Rana. It's only her youngest daughter, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. Only her Yusuf, youngest daughter. Kasim, Amjad, Amal, Layla. Like, they're not there. And in and fact, the story ends, they're not together. Right. It's, it's a true story. And they have like these plastic dish, uh, these, these dishes that like just don't make any sense. Um, <laughs> you can't cook with. Uh, mm-hmm. The por- apartment's poorly furnished. And 
Uh, for Muna, when she arrives, like the the oven doesn't work; it's just not plugged. And the case something. manager never showed up. Yeah, and the case manager never showed up. They were just in this apartment like, okay. for three days. Let's let's talk about how brave Muna is. Huh. Um, this is a thing that I, I I always fear that when I'm share like information and statistics about refugees, there can be this idea that oh, refugees are people that deserve our sympathy. <laughs> And like, we should feel bad for them and try to help. And like, there's a certain aspect in which that, that is true. Um, like I I would encourage us to move towards empathy instead of sympathy. Um, but refugees, part of the process of being a refugee, honestly, especially if you're resettled in a country like the United States, like is resilience is virtue and honor and strength. Muna, when she arrives in the United States with her husband and their kids, like the, her oven isn't working. She doesn't even know where they had to use it, but it's not working. Um, there's a rotisserie chicken that wasn't that great. Um, and there's four apples and that's all that is in their fridge. And she gets in, I think on a Friday mm-hmm. and there's this thing that, Case managers are supposed to do a first day home visit, the first calendar day after a family arrives. You don't hear about this in the story. This is me just knowing <laughs> the other side of it, which is just really fascinating reading it because mm. you're hearing about the experience and I'm thinking like, okay, but like what was supposed to happen or what is happening and why does it feel that way? But nobody showed up that first day. And so they're like hungry. And she like, with some money that she was given by the case manager, whoever it was that met them at the airport, she like ventures out of their apartment in Austin, Texas, right? It's Austin, right? It's mm-hmm. um, this, you know, metropolitan area coming from <laughs> a small refugee camp, not a tiny, but some, a smaller refugee camp and like ventures across the street, finds a gas, like a convenience store, Gas, yeah, gas station convenience store, and purchases food while not being able to speak the language, having no idea how much money she has. She's just like hoping that you know she has enough. She just hands them all the money, and the, the person there hands money back. Like crossing streets and remembering. I mean, honestly, my memory is terrible. Like she remembered where her apartment was. Mm-hmm. Like if she didn't remember, like what's going to happen? <laughs> Yeah. Right? yeah. And it comes back and, you know, the level of bravery. <laughs> I, I I don't know if I, I would have that in me. Like, I, I would like to think I would, but I, I can't know. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think one of the. the the hard things is is you're in America, which is has this reputation of a land of milk and honey and whatever. Um, and in many ways it is. Um, and yet, I, you know, Muna and, and her family and, and Hasna are like not given, not prepared at all or very little, (laughs) you know? Um, And so 
they have to be incredibly brave and 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 yet nobody thinks that they have to um <laughs> you know there's there's no like no one sees them as heroes in america and when they are um yeah i mean and like hasna is going from a place of being socioeconomically they were not the wealthiest of the wealthy but they were very like they had a lot class, like very they had a lot and now in the united states with just her and her husband like it, it, her husband was always the worker in the family like ran a store and like amazing guy but like he is injured and couldn't work and her family is supposed to be re- arriving in the united states and be resettled with her but then the united things changed um yeah. And the family reunification program was ended. And so she wasn't able to, her family wasn't able to be resettled in the United States. Um, In fact, I think they're on like four different continents or three different, four different countries or, you know, three continents. I don't know at this point. Mm. And so she has to become the primary bread earner for their family I mean, and she. I mean, she worked her whole life, but she didn't work, you know, outside of the home, right? Um, and so, you know, she found a kind of a cool gig, working at a hairdresser with a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. But then, because she didn't have the right certificate of mm-hmm. education or whatever, she had. She was forced out of that because of the fear that the owner would call her out or whatever. And then she had, was working at a hotel as um, a room cleaner mm-hmm. and got injured and wasn't yeah. given workers comp or anything. I liked your language hunter of their heroes, but we don't see them as heroes because mm we might not even see them. Right. Um, And it's really hard to, one of the challenging things about entering this kind of line of, I don't even want to say line of work, but this, this type of living, intentionally living with the, with the foreigner, foreigner and refugees and other immigrants, like, and thinking about that and building relations around that relationships around that is, you run into stories all the time. They're like, these people are amazing. This individual has gone through so much and, and, you know, refugees are just like you and I, you know, the, the difference is their back, back, background. Mm-hmm. That's what they, you know, their, their challenges in their life. And that's not to say that we haven't gone through challenges either. <laughs> it's not the case. <laughs> um, even though sometimes I'm like, wow, my, my challenges don't, don't count, <laughs> um, which is not a healthy perspective and not true. Mm. Um, But it's it's very challenging because as soon as you start walking alongside refugees, you realize you know, the stories and the lack that exists in resources. Mm. And the mindset is then, well, let me provide all the resources. Like these people should be in the best resources. They should have the best homes and all these. And that's not a healthy perspective to have either. It's 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 this really amazing, you know, 
tension that exists in everything. <laughs> and it just, you know, as you turn one corner and the tension's higher and then you turn the other, there's you know, more tension. And then you turn the other and you realize, oh, you know, the United States, we care about time so much. Um, other cultures, like, I think the United States is probably the most time-based culture in history. I don't know about England, the British. Probably get it from them. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Thanks, Britain. <laughs> I have a question. I was asking while I was reading this book wasn't quite answered is is what what can we do practically and then you know the other part is is what can we do to fight apathy um, and have hope <laughs> because you know, they give all the numbers um, and you gave the number of 1% of um, refugees are resettled. And uh, she talks about how, uh, I think it's Mike Pompeo in his speech about refugees kind of fudges some numbers together to, to make it seem like the U.S. has accepted a lot of refugees when they haven't. It's classic mm -hmm. politics, both sides do it. Um, yep. But you know also just like the percentage of refugees that the u.s has resettled is just it's like not even a drop in the bucket it's like <laughs> a uh, mist um <laughs> a, a one water <clears throat> molecule but yeah what what can we do and 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 how how do we keep doing it? Yeah. Thanks for asking that Hunter. Um, before I answer that, I want to say that while the U S's numbers are, you know, not even a drop in the bucket, historically the United States has done by sheer percentage of people, not percentage based off the size of our country and who were, you know, how many people were welcoming in, but by the number of ref refugees were selling in the world, the United States actually, has resettled a significant percentage. Mm. Um, the, depending on the specific time frame you're going to, you could find things as high as 50%. Mm. Um, the United States has welcomed 3 million refugees since 1980, which is still less than 1% of our entire population. If they were all to be welcomed this year at this moment, let alone <laughs> over that entire course of time. So I want to say that the United States, and I think that this author, Jessica Godot, talks about that at the end. Like, hey, like, the program that the United States has is still unique and amazing that it exists and pretty robust, even though it has such clear fail, you know, failings and shortcomings. Um, so I, I want to, you know, say that positive yeah. thing about the United States. Um, but there are four ways. Uh, I'd encourage you to uh, kind of keep, you know, keep this in, in, in front of your mind and, 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 and acting on it. Mm 
Um, and the, the, the first is give. Um, there are ref- refugee resettlement agencies that resettle refugees in addition to organizations that work with refugees in practically every town and city in our country. I promise you there are ones near you that you can get connected with. Um, look it up. Um, I, of course, you know, would always encourage people to give to World Relief um, because the work we're doing is both here in the United States and globally um, addressing core causes that would cause people, preventing people from needing to be refugees in addition to welcoming and work, walking alongside refugees and immigrants and other immigrants um, in the process. Give me some links to put in the um, the show notes. Yeah, I will. I will. Um, actually, I have just the world ref, uh, world relief dot dot com. Um, just dot org. I should know that. Um, <laughs> great page to go to. You can see kind of the work we're doing. Um, again, both in the United States and across the world. Um, so find one to give. Um, you could even you know raise money through you know uh, for a birthday. You know, to give to a refugee organization. Um, refugee resettlement organizations are almost always looking for furniture and stuff like that. So find an organization near you that um, works with refugees and is looking for furniture donations or mm. other um, like cleaning supplies or clothing. Um, and that's a really cool way, uh, different ways to think around giving. Um, the second is advocating. Um, and I would say that is kind of twofold. The first aspect of it is just learning more. Um, after the last border is a great book. There are a lot of other amazing books around refugees out there for all different ages. Um, check them out. Um, a couple that come to mind, welcoming the stranger is a, is a great one. Um, Oh, there's enough, so many going through my head. Um, there are a couple kids' books around refugees that are really great. Um, the, um, the Girls in the Boat, I think, is is the name of a, a movie. Um, there's really great documentaries out there. Anyways, um, that's an aspect of, of advocating is learning more. Um, the other aspect is write letters to Congress, uh, have conversations with family members, um, I'm going to send this piece to, to Hunter about world relief. Um, but there's an entire branch of what we do that is about advocating and there's different types of, um, like pre-written letters we have that you can send to, to your Senator, um, or senators. One of the big ones right now is around the Afghan adjustment act. Hmm. which is a bill in front of Congress saying, hey, we need to provide a permanent pathway to citizenship for all of the Afghan arrivals who worked with our U.S. military who have arrived, who have arrived since the fall of Afghanistan. Yeah. Because um, under current law, after two years in the United States, Afghan arrivals, because they came as humanitarian parolees, not hmm. as refugees, even though they meet the definition of a refugee, um, after two years, they will be sent back to their home country. Mm. Refoulement is the word for it. 
um, which can't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not only shouldn't happen, like it can't happen. Um, so advocating, um, pray. I, I think our country and our, our world and our culture, maybe our, our culture, I'll say, talks about prayer as being somewhat meaningless and just an empty platitude. But God responds to prayer. Prayer is active. Pray for the refugees that are arriving in the United States. Um, pray that you would pray for pray that God would open up opportunities for you to build relationships with refugees and other immigrants. Pray for the the conflicts that are happening in the world, those that you know of and those that you don't. Um, that there would be um, justice and the swift end to them, so that. Um, refugees wouldn't need to seek resettlement in a different country. They'd be able to go back home. And the last is serve. Uh, Find ways to get involved. Um, Again, there are tons of refugee and other immigrant-facing organizations in our country that are doing amazing work. And I promise you that all of them uh, are looking for people that can help out. Um, whether it be one time or ongoing, I will give a push. Um, if you, the real way that you're going to see transformation in your life and in other people's is through ongoing relationships. And so I would push everybody to, to not think in terms of what can I do once, but what can I be doing regularly um, to welcome other people, um, to be welcomed by them. Um, and to be in relationship. So give, advocate, pray, serve. Help us fill in the gaps of the work we do. Mm. Thanks, Eric. I know I uh, I definitely struggle with apathy. Um, so easy to do. Uh, if If you don't have a... strong connection to keep you in contact or reason. Mm-hmm. But um, it's important to do not just because it's a good thing to do, um, but I think it's also good for us um, to stretch, to learn about other people. Um, and I know from admittedly limited uh, volunteer experiences that I've had that a lot of the time I end up learning, feeling like I got more than I gave, um, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. maybe, maybe not financially, but just uh, emotionally. And um, 100% I, the number of times I hear, oh, I was, I came to serve other people, but I was served more. Like it, it sounds like a joke, but it is absolutely true. And some cliches are cliches for a reason. Yeah. They're true. And in, 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 in our office, we talk about mutual transformation. That's our goal for all of our volunteers, for all of the churches we partner with, for all of our community partners and for all of our clients 
in relationship together that will see mutual transformation. Because that's what happens when you're in a relationship. And Hunter, my life has been changed because of being friends with you. <laughs> like, I can't get around that. It's mutual. Um, yeah. And and maybe that's a little bit more intense than some of my other friends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's true across the board. As you're in actual relationships with people, you're both transformed. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you feel like we missed, something you wanted to say or leave us with? Um, I will say that we didn't talk too much about Muna and Hasna's story, stories. And a large part of that is because this book's so well written. I don't think <laughs> it's, I don't think we could say it better than this book. And because I would really invite you, our listeners, to to hear the stories from their own voices. Um, they're beautiful stories. Like like we said, they'll bring you to tears. Um, but it, it, I felt honored to be able to to share in their stories. Yeah. Um, to hear from them. And I think this is a book that will stick with me for a long time. Even though I, the first time I read it was just a few months ago. Hmm. Um, maybe six months ago. I don't even know. Because um, it does such a good job of communicating the human story while also com- communicating the U.S. specific context. Uh, and it's really hard to do those things together. Right. Um, yeah. If you need a last encouragement to read this book, uh, the quote across the time, the top is from the New York Times book review. Uh, it says, simply brilliant. This book should be required reading. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's weird. Quotes like that always make me skeptical, but you know, in this one, I, I would agree it should be required reading. Um, if nothing else, it will give you a new perspective on your own life. Um, and maybe, uh, make you think about, uh, it made me think about how, how fortunate I was, um, to have my family and to be safe in a place where I can raise my family. Um, Because for a lot of people, that's not the case. Mm. Yeah. Hunter, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Um, Glad I did. Yeah. It means a lot to me that you did. And I am excited to bring other pieces uh, that I've been reading uh, and interacting with Mm. over the coming months into our discussions. Yeah, I am too. I think it's, um, you know, I need it. (laughs) And I think uh, other people do too. 
Amen. Yeah,